Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Today we're going to continue in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 14, starting there in verse 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can do that. John 14, verse 12. We're going to go to verse 15. So a pretty small little passage for us today. And today we're going to talk about work. Today we're going to talk about work. Um, the worst job I ever had, okay, and I, when he, that's a, a good way to sort of start a conversation. What's the worst job you ever had, okay? I've had some pretty nasty jobs. I used to work uh, for a lobster company 70 hours a week, buying lobsters off the boat. It was nasty. It was disgusting. That was not the that's That's actually Ed's job, not with lobsters, but digging clams, okay? Um... That was not the worst job I ever had. The worst job I ever had was working overnights at Hannaford. It was terrible, okay? And I only did it two nights a week from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. I stocked the shelves. I blocked the shelves. Blocking is just bringing everything to the front. If you go to Hannaford early in the morning, you'll notice that the shelves look very nice. That's because people like myself toiled away through the middle of the night to make them look nice. You got to get three three pieces of product in a row, okay? That's what you got to do. You got to bring three to the front so it looks nice. Worst job I ever had. Terrible job, okay? Just absolutely terrible job. What made it so bad was the music. The music was terrible. They played the same music over and over again. Celine Dion, if you want it the most, there's no, just a horrible song, okay? Especially at 3 a.m. in the morning, okay? So now, if I go into Hannaford and I hear that song, it's like, you know, it's, I get triggered and I have to head for the exit and leave, okay? Just a terrible song, okay? But the concept was important. Working. I was working. I was providing for my family. I made an extra two dollars an hour doing the overnight. Was it worth it? No, but I, you know, we got to make it happen, okay? As followers of Jesus, we are also called to work, and today we are going to see um, this concept of working, although today it's going to be a different type of work, not a vocational work or a job work, although the Bible has a lot to say about that type of work, but working as a follower of Jesus, working as a Christ follower. Today we're going to look at that work. We're going to see that we are called to do three things, three types of work that we're going to see discussed today. We're going to see the works that Jesus did that we're called to imitate. We're going to see the greater works that Jesus has called all of us to. And then finally, we're going to see how God works for us. Because it is a two-way street. We work, but God is also working. And so, if you want to turn your Bibles, John 14, starting verse 12, we're going to read together verses 12 to 15. Okay, this is what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Greater works than Jesus. What does that mean? Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, 
I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This passage has a lot in it. There's a lot of questions that can come, starting from doing greater works than Jesus, all the way to asking anything in the name of Christ and that being done for us. First, we're going to start with the first half of verse 12, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This text introduces the general theme or point of our passage. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will work. The unemployment rate in the kingdom of God is 0.0%. Okay? Everybody works. We're all employed. Now, there's one specific thing that I really want to highlight in this passage, and that's the connection between belief and work. Again, it says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. To believe in Jesus is also to do the works of Jesus. You can't separate the two. Okay? You can't separate the two. This is what it says in the book of James. I'm going to read from James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. If you're familiar with the book of James, you probably know what I'm going to read here, if I can get there in my Bibles. James comes out to Hebrews, yeah. Okay. Starting in verse 14, this is what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If your brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, but without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 24, this is what it says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is a very squirrely passage. I believe the, uh, Martin Luther called this book of James a right strawy book. That was his words, I believe. He didn't like this book because it brings some interesting questions. The central teaching of the Christian faith is that we are saved by faith, right? By faith in Jesus, apart from works. That you can't be good enough to make it into heaven. That God is not measuring you based on a scale where your good works are here, your bad works are here, and you hope that you eke out 51% versus 49%, right? That's not how it works. We're saved by faith alone. But here it sounds like James is saying we are saved by our works. And then you take what Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will do the works that I do. Well, which one is it? Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by works? Are we saved by both? What James is referring to is dead faith. Dead faith. That is a professed faith in Jesus that is not backed up by life changed by Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. James is saying that if you merely talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk of Christ, then you do not know him. That we're saved by faith alone, but that faith works out. It does things. You live a different life, and if you don't live a life, then your faith is dead. It is not genuine. So it's not our works that save us, but instead our works that demonstrate the genuineness of our salvation. 
Okay? As it says in John, going back to John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. I think some of us can, especially if we're maybe immature in our faith or maybe we've just been lulled into this sense that we can kind of figure God out. What I mean by that, that God is some type of silly puzzle game that as long as I complete the right steps, I get the prize. There's this guy on Facebook, I think he's a magician, he completes all these crazy puzzles. I don't know if you've seen him. It's kind of cool, but you know, you got to press the, the puzzle in this way and pull it this way and twist it this way and then it, it opens up and, and you get the prize inside the puzzle. As long as I say the right things, as long as I believe the right things, as long as I have this head knowledge of Jesus, I'll be fine. It doesn't matter if it actually penetrates to the level of the heart or penetrates to the level of my hands, right? As if whenever I get to heaven, God's going to look me up in his holy Rolodex and say, well, Aaron, you profess faith in me, but you didn't actually live it out at all. Well, Aaron, you know, you, you had no evidence of true, genuine belief in your life, but you did get baptized at youth camp that one year, so I guess I'll let you in, right? That's silliness. doesn't make any sense. In what universe do you not look at how people live their lives and compare that to the things that they actually say, right? As if God exists in a different realm. Romans 8 says that we are conformed to the image of Jesus. That once you have professed with your tongue that Christ is Lord, you live your life with Jesus being Lord. Whenever I was at the church I was at in Augusta, my job was to chat with people who want to be baptized. And that was a very formative uh, part of, of my ministry there at the church because it got me at the ground level. I mean, you hear me preaching every Sunday or, um, you know, you could serve in different capacities here in the church, in worship, doing the coffee. It's different whenever you sit down with someone, ask them questions about their life about what they believe, about this book and this man and how they're sort of processing all these things and, and what it actually looks like in their life. You get really close to people, maybe too close. <laughs> For a lot of people, too close. Stop asking those questions. But that was my job. And so people say, I want to be baptized. And I'll call them up. <clears throat> and there's only, it's hard to have these conversations in and really get to a, a deep knowledge of someone. And, and that's what I feel like we, we think we can do. We can just kind of figure this out in one quick go. Let me call you. We'll have a 15-minute conversation, and then we'll, we'll you know, get you baptized, right? <clears throat> in the book of Acts, we see people baptized right away. So I think there's a space for that. But I was calling people, and I'm trying to figure out, what do you actually believe? You say you want to be baptized. Well, share that message that you say you believe with me. Do you know it? Do you have a sense of your separation from God and, and your just unimaginable relief and love for God that He would send His Son to die on the cross for you, to, to transfer, transform you from a, a rebel to His name into a son and a daughter? And yeah, I mean, you know... I'm not looking for, I wasn't looking for dissertations here, and obviously I'm a pastor, and I, you know, I, I'm fairly, you know, deep into this message, but you're just looking for that little kernel of repentance and faith, just the tiniest kernel of repentance 
and faith from these people and then seeing that actually change the way that they live. And so trying to ride that out with people because Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will do the works that I do. You will do the works that I do. And again, we hear James say, faith without works is dead. That we're not saved by our works, but saving faith results in works. So going back, we are called to consider our lives. And I want you to consider your life. Are you doing the works of Jesus? And I phrase it that way because you might be thinking you're doing works, but are they the works of Jesus? The works of Jesus. So we're in here, we're reading, what did he do? He raised the dead. Have you raised someone from the dead? No. Are you supposed to raise someone from the dead? Yes. Actually, no, you're not supposed to. But you're supposed to point people to the one who raises them from the dead, right? Do you practice the mercy and the grace that you have received? Whenever I was just working through my message earlier this morning, I was thinking about the parable of the man that had the huge debt. I don't even remember where, it's in, where it is in the Gospels. He has this huge debt to a master or a king, and the king forgives the man his entire debt, billions and billions of dollars. And then the man who's being forgiven this debt is also has someone else that owes him money. And that man who's being forgiven the debt does not forgive the debt of the guy that owes him money. And so what it means is that guy does not understand the forgiveness that he's been given because he can't give that forgiveness to anyone else. And so I think about that for you. That's what we have in Jesus. Full forgiveness, grace, mercy, life. I got that, but I'm not living it out with other people. There's a disconnect there. We've lost something there. If you believe in Him, you will do the things that He does. You'll have a life marked by mercy and grace. You'll be generous. You'll be a light. You'll love God. You'll love your enemies. You'll pray for them as you're persecuted. You'll praise God in heaven that you suffer. This is what believers in Jesus do. This is what Jesus says that we will do. And so what I bring to you, if you have made that confession, really search yourself and ask yourself, is this true of you? You're not going to be perfect, and I'm not trying to lead you down to a place where you're questioning your own salvation. I don't want to do that. But you know what? Sometimes people should. Sometimes people should. I grow up in a Christian culture down south where it was, I made the joke about the Holy Rolodex in the youth camp confession. But it's true. For a lot of people, it's true. And so whenever we think through these things, we really need to soberly assess, are we doing the work of Jesus? Because we are called to do that as an expression of the faith and the confession that we have made. So we work. We do good works. Again, there is a 0.0% unemployment rate in the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus says something that should really knock you out here and really make you question what you're reading. He says this in the second half of verse 12. He says, If you love me, 
You'll keep my, actually, that's verse 15, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So we are called to do the works of Jesus, but then he says that we're to do greater works than Jesus. How? Right? I mean, Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus fed like, if we could do greater works of Jesus, we'd open up a restaurant and make tons of money because we just got to buy a loaf of bread, right? And some fish, right? Feed thousands of people. We would end world hunger. How? How are we going to do greater works than Jesus? Look at what he did in the book of John. Let in the history of mankind, the salvation of the world accomplished by His blood. How are we going to do something greater than that? Well, this is how. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This is kind of cool to see. Starting in verse 12. So, in Acts chapter 1, Acts is the story of the start of the church. It's a roller coaster ride of history. I, we preached through it uh, a long time ago, before we got in the book of John. I encourage you to read it. So Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, he's come to his disciples, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, whenever you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So this has happened, he's setting them up for ministry while he's gone, okay? And then we read here in verse 12. <clears throat> then they returned to Jerusalem, the they being his disciples from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So that's 11. Jesus has 12 disciples. Judas is gone. Okay? So they haven't replaced him yet. So all the eleven disciples are together in one room. Okay, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together um, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the important part, verse 15 here. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. So, if you're keeping score at home, Jesus has spent three years of his life traveling up and down Judea and Galilee, performing amazing signs and wonders and miracles. And all of this time, he is able to build a church of about 120 people. 120 people make it. Now, for a church like ours, that's a lot of people. Jesus has done a really nice job of gathering together people, right? But for others, they might say Jesus needs to reassess his church growth strategy, right? 120 people over three years, pretty good Jesus, doesn't really knock us out. Maybe you should have used more smoke machines and lights, right? Maybe you needed that to really get it going. I just, I'm joking, but you get what I'm saying. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I just want to make the point. Three years of intensive earthly ministry, and Jesus has about 120 people that actually follow him. And he's done amazing things. 120 people. Now, let's read this. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said they would in John uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter, who was afraid of a little servant girl just yesterday, is now preaching the gospel to people that can actually get him killed, and that already killed Jesus two seconds ago. He's preaching to them the gospel message of salvation through the cross. That you killed Jesus, and this Jesus did not die. He rose from the dead. He's preaching this message to them. Go on to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He gives them the message, and now they have to respond. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what you want. The message comes, what do you believe? Cut to the heart. You're like, yes, we want you to be cut to heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. So if you're keeping track at home, it took Jesus three years to get 120 people. It took Peter one sermon to get 3,000 souls. Now, obviously, we're not pitting Jesus against Peter. It's not like Peter's dunking over Jesus, right, with the 3,000 souls. I don't know if you guys watch ESPN. He's not posterizing Jesus with the number of people he got saved. That's not how it works. He's preaching Christ. He's not against Christ. This is the greater work. This is the greater work that Jesus was talking about. Go back to the text. Jesus says this, And greater works will he do, because I am going to the Father. Look at Acts. Jesus ascends into heaven. I'm going to the Father. Jesus goes to the Father. And then what happens? 3,000 people are saved. 3,000 people are saved. Just like Jesus said. So the point here is this. The greater work of preaching the gospel has been delegated to the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. 
starts there, the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit come, witnesses of Jesus. Whereas the ministry of Jesus, while on this earth, was confined to an area about the size of New Jersey. That's how big Israel, the whole area is. There in the Middle East. He has delegated to the church the greater ministry of preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what we've seen the past 2,000 years, millions and millions and billions of people have called upon the name of the Lord and been saved. This is the greater work. And honestly, what work could be greater than that? And I now want to kind of bring that and place that in your life. Okay? You have your job. You have your family. You have your marriage. If you're married. Your hobbies, the things you do. All of these things you spend time on. And I just wonder for you, if you are giving yourself to what Jesus calls your greater work. What Jesus has called your greater work. And that doesn't negate these things. That work is in those things. That work is in your marriage. Is in your raising of your kids. Is in your job. Your better husband, father, wife, mother, worker, friend. Whenever you have that perspective. But I'm just asking, are you approaching your life and giving your energy and your effort and your work and viewing it through the lens of the greater work that Jesus has called you to. Second Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I just love this because here we have sort of a date set with God, an exit interview, if you will. An exit interview of you're exiting this world and entering into heaven. And Peter is saying to Timothy, do your best to get ready for that day. To be approved. Now we understand, God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ. That I enter into heaven purely by Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Praise God for that. But I'm still called to work for God in this life. And I don't want to be ashamed of that day. That I spent all my time on YouTube. Spent all my time wait on my phone, right? Spent all my time doing things that didn't matter. So I'm not ashamed. That I would rightly handle God's word. The same word that came down and handled my sin for me. Did you take his words to heart? Did you live as he called you to live? So that God could say to you one day, Well done, good and faithful servant. What we see is that if you believe in Jesus, your life is different. You will do His works in your life, and He calls you to a greater work to do, a greater mission, a greater vision for what your life is about. And that leads us here to our third and final point. And here the tables are going to turn a little bit. What we're going to see, lastly, is not the work we do for God, but finally the, God, the work that God does for us. This is what it says in John 14, starting in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There are very few passages in the Bible as comforting 
as this passage, I would say. Here we have a promise, a blank statement promise, from God that He will do anything we ask of Him, right? Before you start praying for a new car, let's look a little bit more closely at this text. You might be tempted to read the text like this. If you ask me anything, I will do it. But this is what it says. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These are two different prayers, two different approaches to God, and introduces the idea of us praying in the name of Jesus. Whenever I pray, typically I'll pray in the name of Christ. At the very end, I'll say, this we pray in the name of Jesus, in the strong name of Jesus, something like that. What does that mean, to pray in the name of Christ? Why do we pray things in the name of Jesus? And can we just tag this on to anything we pray so that we can get that new car we want or whatever, okay? Whenever we're praying in the name of Jesus, it means we're asking for things that are consistent with Jesus' character and His authority. We're asking for things that are consistent with the name that we are praying in. So what that means, if I'm asking God to keep me safe in Jesus' name while I'll go rob this bank, I don't think that prayer is going to be answered, right? Because it isn't consistent with the name I'm praying in. Whenever we pray in Jesus' name, it centers our prayers and petitions. It's coming to God and understanding that He is not a blank check, and my prayer is not a magic incantation, but in fact is actually conforming me to His will. So I'm coming to God, and I'm praying for the things that are consistent with His Son, because if, it's, if it isn't consistent with Jesus, then I don't want the thing. Have you ever thought about that? I'm coming to God, and I'm giving them the stuff, and I'm asking, okay, is this consistent with what I know to be true about God and His Word, or is this just me? Or is this just me? This is a call for you to pray big, godly prayers because God delights in answering big godly prayers. And he answers it for this purpose. Look again in verse 13. Look again. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, my, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So God wants to answer your prayer that you pray in Jesus' name because he is going to be glorified in the answering of it. He's going to be glorified in the answering of it. Why is that? How is he glorified? Well, he's glorified because the work of Jesus is complete. Read this with me in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, We were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Talk about a bad situation right? This was our situation before Jesus came. This was our situation. No hope in the world, dead in sin, enemies of God, separated from Him. We had nothing. Then he continues, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I just love that text, that we are way over here, and God brought us right where he is, through Jesus, 
through the blood. So that now, as it says in Hebrews 4.16, we can now, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. God delights to answer your prayer because the cross worked. Because it worked. That God could take someone who was a stranger to him, an alien to him, who was an enemy to him, who was in the domain of darkness, change them from the inside out through the crucifix and resurrection of his son so that now I can come to God boldly. Me and Hannah are reading the book of Exodus right now. We haven't made it to this part yet. You guys know the story of Nadab and Abihu? Whenever the sons of Aaron offer false or strange fire to God, unauthorized fire is what it says. Do you know what happened? They got burned up. They got destroyed. And it says that Aaron held his peace. Aaron couldn't even say anything. He just saw his two sons get killed. Right? That's like crazy. But now it says in Hebrews 4.16 that I with confidence can draw near the throne of God. Whenever before, if I had done that on my own time in my own way, I wouldn't be here. That God could make a way to him so that now me, as, as ugly in my sin as I am, can boldly approach him purely through the blood of Jesus so that God will answer my prayer and petition, that makes God look good. That glorifies his name. God delights in answering your prayer because the cross worked. Because whenever we pray it, he sees the blood of Jesus' sacrifice that sanctifies it. And he responds in kind. So that now, whatever we ask in the name of Jesus will be answered to us. But I've got to be honest with you. Whenever I think about that or, or tag that little line there in the name of Jesus, I can be let down a little bit. Because what if I want something that God doesn't want me to have? Right? This whole in Jesus name business can kind of cramp your style. It's like this. Growing up as a kid, and especially today, I would say, my favorite candy was sour gummy worms. Favorite candy, all time. Hannah is so good. Every Valentine's Day, anniversary, birthday, Christmas, sour gummy worms, okay? She's, she's on top of it. One day, I was all excited. My mom got me some sour gummy worms. I was like, yes, sour gummy worms. And she shows up, and she hands them to me, and it's the cheap sour gummy worms, right? It's the off-brand sour, it's the gas station sour gummy worms, right? The Cumberland Farm sour gummy worms. No good. Because everyone knows the best sour gummy worms are the trolley sour gummy worms. But she got the off-brand. And so, yeah, I was excited for the sour gummy worms, but I wasn't excited as if I'd gotten what I really wanted. What I really wanted. And so you go back to that line, if you ask anything in my name, I will do for you. And it's like we can view that as some big gotcha by God. Some big tempering of expectations. Some big lowering. Right? Yeah, you can pray for whatever you want, but it's got to be in my name. So there's actually a few parameters of things that you can have here. You only get the off-brand sour gummy worms, not the ones that you actually want. If you are tempted to think this way, let me remind you what this says in Romans chapter 8. 
says this. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's really this freedom that comes whenever you see Jesus as your greatest treasure. There's this freedom that comes whenever you see him as your highest prize, as your biggest answer prayer. Really, your biggest answer prayer is Christ. As the greatest work of God on your behalf. Whenever you get that, you will trust him with everything else. That he truly is working for you and working out what's best for you. That there's no greater prayer to pray than the ones that are in Jesus' name. And none more certain of being answered. That we desire and pray for the things that are consistent with the character of God and Jesus because we know those are the things that are best for us. And when tempted to pray for things outside of that character, we know that that's not what God wants. That's not what we want. Because it's not good for us. And so today, as we're thinking about work, the work that Jesus has done that should be evident in our lives, the greater work of preaching the gospel, and then the greatest work of seeing God work on our behalf and praying within His character, I want to bring that to you. I want you to really think about yourself. And whenever we kind of think and compare ourselves to God's Word, a lot of times we might can feel ashamed or feel down or feel like maybe we don't measure up. What I want to caution there is don't fall into that trap. As a church planner, a lot of times I think about where we're at as a church and should we be farther ahead than we're at? What does farther ahead even mean, right? What does that even mean? Accusation can come. If you feel accused, just know it's not from God. That's not how God works, right? How does God work? Does God accuse? No. Who was accused on your behalf? That's what Jesus took. Right? He, he took that. Accusation comes from Satan. So get rid of that. Remind yourselves of here in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for you, how much more would He graciously give you all things? As you consider your life, and the work God has called you to, and the greater work of the gospel ministry, and seeing how God is going to work on your behalf, I want you to take heart. I want you to work. I want you to feel that conviction, that good godly conviction, and just throw yourself into the promises that God has kept and the promises that He has made in His Son. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for your word that comes and always challenges us and, and always um, speaks a, a better message, Lord, than, than we get on our own and a better message than we get from the world. To see in, in Jesus every answered prayer, to see in Christ every satisfaction that we need, to, to see uh, petitioning you and coming to you in his name, knowing that, that that is the best things that we could be asking for, Lord, even if there are things in us, in, in our flesh, that may think otherwise. I want to pray, Lord, that, that you would give us a heart to want to come to you in a way that's consistent with your Son. Show us what that even means. Teach us to pray as the disciples 
um, asked of Jesus. I pray that we would do the works that we have seen in your word, that that would be true of us, that we wouldn't have a dead faith, Lord, but have a faith that's alive and well and works, Lord. I pray that we as a church would give ourselves to the greater work of gospel ministry, understanding that we are just in a long line of, of the church that has gone before us and, and done this before, that we are only where we're at because of what the church has done in years past, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would come to you and petition you, asking anything, Lord, of you, and that you will answer that prayer as it's consistent with who you are. Give us boldness, Lord, to approach your throne. Give us boldness, Lord. And, and what's amazing is that as we grow in our understanding of, of who Jesus is or understand the gospel, we are more bold, which is interesting to think about. We live more boldly. We live more securely. We live with greater power. We live, we live with greater victory, Lord, because we are approaching you through your Son, in whom you are well pleased. I lift up our church here. I lift up everyone here, Lord, those that aren't able to be with us. We just pray that you would conform us to your image, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.